The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 104 for the week of February 11th, 2019. Alex, uh, this is Valentine's Day week. It is. Happy Valentine's Day, Rob. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, have you identified who's your Valentine going to be this this year? Uh, you're not my Valentine, Rob? Uh, well, I, I'm not saying uh, I'm not. I just, you know, uh, we haven't had the formal conversation yet. Uh, I guess I have not identified it then. All right. Uh, my, my, my bad. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe next year, <laughs> maybe, maybe if, uh, if, if your wife listens to this, she'll have a, she'll have some ideas. Uh, so, you know, before we jump into the news, why don't we do, go through some quick housekeeping? Uh, we do have a Slack channel. It's, it's been very active lately with you know, almost 800 folks on there. We also have a mailing list. If you want to get notifications every week of new episodes and show notes, sign up for that. And you can do both of those things. You can get the link for Slack and the mailing list on our website, which is colorado-security.com. Or you can go to co-ceo, boy, I just messed that up, didn't I? (laughs) co-sec.co. Yeah, that's much easier than colorado-security.com, isn't it? Yes, it is. Much, much easier. Let's keep moving along here. Uh, We'd love it if you would rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast player, maybe iTunes. Uh, If you want to provide a more monetary level of support, you can go to our Patreon page and uh, subscribe to help us support the show. And if you don't want to provide the cash, but you do want to help us uh, accomplish the mission of making Colorado the mecca for information security, I want you to go ahead and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast and help spread what we're doing. Awesome. Let's jump into the news. Uh, First, Rob, there was a news story this week. Uh, There was a trail runner that was attacked by a mountain lion and then got him in a rear naked choke, choked him out. So uh, he didn't just choke him out. He, it took him to death. Yeah. Uh, so mountain lions, you know, they are an apex predator, right? There's, there's nothing out there that this mountain lion is, is scared of. Um, and, and really the fact that a, a human was able to survive this conflict is just pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, you still don't hear a whole lot about mountain lion attacks because they still don't attack people a whole lot. They right. are an apex predator, but they're not dumb either. They're, they know that they're probably not going to eat us. Uh, so there's no reason to really spend the energy. Um, in this case, it sounded like it was a, a juvenile mountain lion. So maybe he was just a little confused. Yeah. Uh, anyway, pretty pretty awesome for this guy. He sounds like he was significantly injured, but not not, li- not life threatening. So healing up in the hospital. Uh, anyway, this is a pretty pretty good accomplishment for him. Yeah, I'm I'm very proud of this guy. I, I can't imagine what I would have done if it happened to me. Uh, I know what you would have done, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> you would have died. <laughs> Thank you for the vote of support. All right. Uh, next story, we have uh, one of our homegrown companies here, Home Advisor, uh, ha- was advertising in the Super Bowl this year. They, it was not during the actual game itself; it was during the pregame and the postgame. But uh, it was pretty cool to see them on there. Yeah, a, a, sounded like a couple national ads and a, a local version of the ad. Uh, nice for Home Advisor to get some press talking about in the article, just about overall their uh, their marketing vision for the year. Uh, that it sounds like maybe they're going to have some ads during the Grammys and, and some other things yeah. like that as well. So pretty cool to see see lo- uh, local boy makes good big stuff. Uh, next, uh, Fortune 500 construction and engineering firm Kiwit uh, announced that Lone Tree is going to be a new regional office with up to 1,100 jobs. You know, I don't know that I saw exactly where it is, but I know it's over by Ridgegate. So we're you know, kind of in the same ballpark as uh, as Charles Schwab and, and Sky Ridge Medical Center over there. Yeah, exactly. And there's soon going to be another light rail stop that opens there down there, uh, yeah. which I think was one of the reasons for them selecting the site. Yeah. So it, it, really cool. I love to see these companies coming in in force. 1,100 jobs. It's a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, especially considering that they're an Omaha based company, not that far away to have another regional office over here is pretty neat. Well, as you know, there's a lot of construction in Denver. And if you go to any construction site, you'll probably see their logo on it. So yeah. they have a lot of business going on here. All right. Uh, so sp- speaking of companies that are moving big offices, Crocs is moving their corporate headquarters. Um, so they're th- good for us. They're not leaving the state. They're actually just moving down the road uh, for, to Broomfield. Yeah, so they've been in Niwot since their uh, inception, which is you know a little bit north of Boulder along the diagonal highway there. Uh, moving down to Broom- Broomfield, this was uh, based on some of the Colorado um, economic development incentives, which in this case, it, it does seem a little bit weird to me that we would give a, a company incentives to move from one Colorado community to another. Um, but I guess I am not in the incentive business, so I don't know exactly what was going on there. Yeah, from, from everything I hear, they just didn't have the the resources to stay in Niwot as for the long term as they wanted to grow. Not enough people, not enough, you know, other stuff. Yeah, I don't know if there was threat that they would leave Colorado and move somewhere else. In that case, sure, okay. Yeah. Let's give them some incentive to, to stay around. Right. Well as we move over from kind of general area news into security news, we have another pretty big general area news as well. Uh Webroot, which is Colorado's oldest security company. You know, if they were around in the mid '90s with Spy Sweeper, they've been here for a long time. We talk about them at least every three months to talk about their double-digit revenue growth for the quarter. Um, they have been acquired. Or excuse me, they are um, they are in an agreement to be acquired by Carbonite, the the big uh, consumer backup software. Yeah, uh, pretty interesting announcement. I am sad that if they are swallowed up by Carbonite, that we will no longer have the quarterly announcements of their double-digit growth. Well, maybe, um, maybe they'll still do it just for us. Maybe, maybe. Maybe Ashley will keep sending us those uh, those announcements, <laughs> even if it's not official. Uh, uh, but, you know, good news for them, um, getting bought in, put into a, a bigger company. I didn't realize how large Carbonite was. But how they, big are they? Um, they were a, a several billion dollar company. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I think it's it's good you see a lot of these sort of data protection kind of companies um, in the sense of backup and other things like that, adding, um, you know, tr- sort of more traditional security capabilities to their portfolio. So that, that looks like what they're doing. And I think it'll probably be good for both companies. Um, so interesting, the the sale price here was alleged to be about $618.5 million. Approximately. Which is really close to what Logarithm was alleged to be uh, sold for to Tala Bravo. And there were news stories about paying uh, about three years ago for having sold for about the same amount. So really interesting that those, you know, three companies are all kind of in the same area here. Uh, I don't know if that means anything, but you know, interesting data points. Yeah. Well, and Webroot, as you mentioned, has been around for a long time. Um, you know, when I saw the number, I thought that seemed um, smaller than I would have expected. You know, if you dig into the numbers, it, it seems reasonable, uh, but just, you know, on the mere fact that they've been around for a long time, but you know, they've had some ups and downs and now it seems like another, another up for them. Yeah. Anyway, so, congratulations for yep. those guys. You know, they brought in a new CEO. Was that like nine months ago? Maybe even yeah, a year ago. Like that, yeah. Um, and, and I, it seems to me like he probably accomplished his goal. Yeah. You know, good for them. Uh, next coal fire announced that they are starting the coal cast podcast on the first anniversary of their research and development team. So the, uh, the pool of Colorado based security podcast just got a little bit bigger. But the competition for number one, no, 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 no different. No, nope. yeah, no, no, everything different. stays the same. Sorry, coal fire. Um, the, the podcast will actually talk about uh, general cybersecurity topics and current events, uh, targeted, targeted, uh, targeted at an infosec audience. Uh, it sounds like their it's their labs team, their R and D team that is going to be doing this. So, you know, talking a lot about uh, pen testing and other things like that. Um, I didn't realize that uh, their labs team had been so prolific in the year since they've been an official team. 
They've uh, released five open source tools, two research reports, and a whole bunch of blogs. That's fantastic. So, I mean, we have talked a lot about the Coal Fire blogs on the show, so I'm, I yeah. assume that's where it's coming from. Well, we, we have got a chance to talk to the, about those guys, and we actually talked to one of them, right? Brian uh, Bershell, who, who came Bryce. on the show. Excuse me, yeah, Bryce. Sorry, Bryce. Came on the show and talked about the, the cryptocurrency uh, yep. purchase they helped with, and he's actually going to be one of the early guests on this podcast as well. Yeah, exactly. All right, moving forward, there's a, a podcast, or excuse me, a blog this week from Ping Identity talking about API security um, and really giving what are some what are four lessons that you can learn about how to protect data through APIs. So rather than going through all the details, just kind of summarize here. Lesson one was secure by design, not through obfuscation. You know, don't assume that people don't know either that the API exists or what the different commands are for your API. Good point. Uh, lesson number two. Don't trust apps to keep secrets. You don't want to be embedding uh, keys into your application. You know, you need to have that obfuscation away from the actual application itself. Yeah, definitely a good one. Anything that runs locally on a machine can't uh, ensure security. Lesson number three, recruit end user input. Uh, what, what does that mean, Alex? I think this is really uh, talking about looking for uh, anomalies and uh, getting other, uh, other details from the users themselves, as well as authentication. And then finally, lesson four, classify and detect anomalies. Know what normal behavior looks like. Uh, start alerting on and acting on anomalies to that behavior. So four, four keys for you know, securing APIs. And there's more details here if you, if you want to read it. Yep. Uh, next, there was a, a blog post from Zavello, uh, 2019 state of phishing and what is next for phishing detection. Um, they give an overview in the, the blog about uh, phishing methods and, and what they are, are seeing that's going on around phishing. As we know, um, the humans are a great target. So uh, definitely still a target going forward. Um, and talking a little bit about uh, ways that uh, obviously you could use uh, their product, but in general, um, what needs to happen to better detect uh, phishing sites and other things like that. Uh, one thing I found super interesting from this article is they have a chart showing which organizations are being... Um, uh, are, people are pretending to be coming from and they have Microsoft at 13% of all emails are, uh, are purported to be from Microsoft, all phishing emails. Uh, Google's at 11%, Facebook, Apple at 10%, PayPal, 6%, Adobe, Dropbox at, at five, Chase, DocuSign at four, and then Wells Fargo at three. And that was what? That's uh, that's about, about 10 different ones. That makes up for 71% of all phishing emails coming from that 10 domains. Isn't that crazy? That is pretty crazy. Um, I would have to say I probably receive phishing emails that fake those uh, those types of companies um, at least once a day. So not so surprising. Interesting stuff. There's, there's more data in here about phishing. And if this is something you're interested in, I definitely recommend just reading through it rather than uh, believing you got everything from our summary here. Uh, finally, we have a blog post from Managed Methods this week talking about data loss prevention tools and really what you need to know about those. Yeah, so the blog gives an overview of uh, what data loss prevention is, uh, ways that you can accomplish it, uh, and then not surprisingly, since they can provide some data loss protection um, through their CASB service, you know how it is that you could use data loss uh, protection prevention in a, a cloud sort of environment. Yeah, Alex, you know, kind of setting aside the article for a second, DLP has been one of those tools that as long as I've been doing security and I assume similar for you, it's just been one of those that it's a great idea and it's just so incredibly hard to do well. Yeah. Yeah. What does step one look like for for DLP effectiveness, you think? Uh, I think that it is knowing where your data is. Yeah. You, you can't really can't really prevent the loss of your data until you know where your data is. I think that's a hard thing still for a yeah. lot of people. And I think it's it's really easy to fall into the trap that 
because I can't be effective in stopping everything that it's not, it doesn't make any sense to stop anything. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, because, you know, well, if I block USB ports, all they're going to do is figure out a way to go to one of those file sharing sites. And, you know, because I have to allow GitHub open and, you know, they can go through that way. Just because you can't stop every channel out doesn't mean that there's no value in stopping what you can stop. Exactly. All Couldn't right. say it better. Cool. Well, that's it for news this week. Let's go ahead and jump over to our Slack message of the week. A uh, big thanks to Andre Gaeta. Andre is local security guy. Now, I think he's like a regional director for Mimecast. I think he's regional director, something like that. So he's not, a, he's no longer doing direct sales, but leading a sales team here in Colorado. Um, anyway, he does this sponsorship of the Slack message of the week on his own. And we appreciate that very much. Every week we recognize one of the most interesting Slack messages from the channel. And that person gets one free item, swag item from the Colorado Equal Security Store. Uh, so this week, our message of the week goes to Ben Feld. Uh, he had a post recommending some IRC security channels. Yeah. So if, if you want to go old school yeah. and uh, do Slack the way that it was originally invented on an IRC, uh, there were some posts in there about what uh, what IRC channels you yeah, should join. It was cool. So, someone asked like, hey, I'm looking to get back into IRC. It's been a while. Any security channels? And he gave, I don't know, eight or nine recommendations. So... Thanks a lot, Ben, and, and look forward to a note here with uh, with your winnings. Let's go ahead and move over to our calendar of events. As a reminder, on colorado-security.com, we do have a calendar of events. And I'll tell you guys, it is packed, packed out through about the middle of the year right now. So you can go start scheduling out what you're going to be working on, uh, what events you're going to be attending uh, over the next few months. Uh, speaking of events in the next couple months, uh, we wanted to, to take a minute to talk a little bit about Snowfrock. Um, that is the OWASP conference that is coming up. Tickets are on sale now for Snowfrock, so uh, you better go check those out before they're gone. Front Range Open, or front, front Range OWASP Conference, yep. Frock, yeah. Yes, and uh, snow because it is here in the mountains. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, big, uh, big news about that is they have, I'd say, one of the biggest names in security as their keynote speaker at the event, Troy Hunt, uh, the of Have I Been Pwned fame. Uh, is going to be there talking all the way from Australia. Exactly. Uh, I'm personally looking forward to, to going and seeing Troy talk. That should be a lot of fun. Me as well. Um, love the uh, Snowfrock conference. It's one of the more affor affordable conferences that we have. I believe it's only $75 for a ticket. And then there's also some training this year. Uh, you can throw another 30 bucks in there, 105 for the conference plus the training. I'm so. looking forward to doing that. And I am sending some of my teammates over to there to, to enjoy it. As am I. Awesome. All right, moving into other events, uh, SecureSet is doing one of their expert series with Scott Hogg talking about encryption on AWS. That's happening on the 12th. Also on the 12th and the 13th, ISSA Denver is doing their February chapter meetings. Uh, on the 13th is one of the CTA 101 events. So if you're looking to get involved with the larger technology community, not just security, this is a good way for you to learn about what the CTA does and get plugged in. If you have determined who your Valentine is, uh, you can take them to the uh, February meeting for ISACA Denver on the 14th. I'm sure it will be riveting and romantic. And I bet, I hope that there are hearts on whatever treats that they're giving out there. This, I sure this hope month. so too. Uh, on the 15th, SecureSet is doing one of their Capture the Flag events. This is uh, the Cybersecurity Hackathon. Show up at 5 o'clock to, to get learned up on what's happening. And 6 o'clock, the main event starts. On the 19th, ISSA Denver Women in Security is having their February meeting with Colorado Equal Security. Rob and I will be there uh, being interviewed for the meeting. If you've been waiting, if you've been dying to get one of the Colorado Equal Security stickers, this Ooh. might be your chance. Yeah, we should probably figure out, maybe we should take some other swag with us as well. Yeah, we might have some swag. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. All right. No, no guarantees, but give it a shot, guys. 
Uh, also on the 19th, if you're a loser and don't want to come watch us talk, uh, the, the Cloud Security Alliance of Colorado has their February meeting that evening as well. Uh, on the 20th, ASIS is having their uh, chapter meeting, which is selecting a trusted business partner. Um, this might be the first ASIS uh, event that we have on the What on the is show. ASIS? Alex? ASIS, um, I don't know what the acronym is for, but it is a physical security. So if you're more guards and guns as opposed to cybersecurity, but uh, ASIS has been moving more into the, the cyber realm yeah. over the years. I mean, there's this, there's this whole world where there's the overlap between a physical and information security and this is a chance for you to start learning about that other side of it yeah uh next city sec is having their their evening happy hour meetup on the 20th as well um so ap- maybe after you go to asus you can swing by have a beer at ryan house with some friends on the 21st secure set is doing a hacking 101 on asset management that should be exciting and finally last event for the next couple of weeks is office hours with uh, Davis, Graham, and Stubbs. This is a chance for you to come talk about, you know, small business law. You know, understanding what are the impacts of law on your organization. So, you know, really uh, a chance for you entrepreneurs out there to get learned up. Sounds good. Let's move over to jobs. This week, surprise, surprise, there are some Ping Identity jobs at oh, the top fantastic. of the list. Fantastic. Some some fantastic jobs at Ping Identity too. I'm hiring number one, a manager of security operations and engineering. Would love to talk to you about this. If you're someone who has. Uh, run security operations in the past and is looking to do so in a dynamic environment with a real heavy focus on AWS and DevOps. We're also hiring a GRC analyst. This is someone to help support our our policies, our risk assessments, uh, our compliance with ISO and SOC 2, our uh, business continuity, incident response. This can be someone with uh, very little or no experience as long as this is someone who's got a real good aptitude to learn and, and uh, is ready to be part of a team. Awesome. Uh, GuidePoint Security is looking for a CISO slash CIO. Yeah, so GuidePoint, I didn't actually know that they had such a big presence in town, but they've been hiring a lot of folks here. They have been. And they're trying to put their CISO here in town. Indeed. Pretty cool. Uh, Next, Carbon Black is hiring a senior director of product security. This is really cool. Uh, Carbon Black wants to put that person in Boulder, and this is going to be the person who helps make sure that the Carbon Black products are created securely and delivered to the market with high level of assurance. Awesome. Uh, CenturyLink is looking for an application security senior lead information security engineer. Boy, that's a mouthful, right? Uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, Bank of America is hiring a senior business information security officer, a senior BSO. Oh, I have never heard of a senior BSO before. Uh, Pearson is looking for a senior information security analyst. Uh, SCL Health is hiring a security analyst too. Simple Energy is looking for a security engineer. And finally, Palo Alto Networks is hiring a cybersecurity portfolio sales specialist focused on major accounts in the West. Uh, This is actually not the only sales position at Palo Alto. They're also hiring, a, I think, a senior director over the whole region. Wow. Um, So if you're looking to get in sales for one of the biggest companies in security uh, and you're in Colorado, this is a good opportunity for you. Perfect. Sounds like good stuff. Well, that is it for the news, Alex. Uh, we do, of course, have a riveting feature interview this week. I got to sit down with Dave Campbell. You know, full disclosure, we've been doing this podcast for over two years. I've been trying to get Dave Campbell for over two years, right? Uh, we've, we've probably scheduled to meet 10 times over that time. And, you know, between our, our very busy schedules, it's been hard to do. But Dave was the, he was the CISO for SendGrid until about a year ago. And now he's the chief operating officer for Zcash. He's also the founder of Alchemy 
uh, shoot, Alchemy, that's, there's another word after that, right? Uh, Alchemy Foundry, or I can't remember. Uh, anyway, of, of his own consulting yeah. security services company here in town. He's done a lot of really interesting stuff, and I think you guys will enjoy the podcast. I felt like it, it could have gone a, another hour on top of what we did, and it would have been really valuable. So hopefully awesome. we get it again later this year. I look forward to hearing it. All right, everyone, have a good one, and uh, happy Valentine's Day, and you know, go give your sweetie a hug as long as your sweetie wants your hugs. Exactly. You right. too. Talk to you later. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Chris Martinez, CISO at Digital Globe. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is Rob Reck here with Dave Campbell. Dave, I'm not going to give your title because you have so many, and, and we'll talk about that as we go. Sure. Um, uh, the first thing I want to talk about, though, is uh, how you spent six months um, about as far away from here as you can. As it, I think geographically speaking, about as far away as you can be from here, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, when the first dot-com bust hit, uh, I had been working as a consultant for Anderson Consulting, which I think by that time had become Accenture, um, and had been pretty burned out, had been doing security assessment uh, work for about four years, mostly in Asia, uh, and after a particularly grueling project in the States, uh, decided to cut the cord and basically go spend some time snowboarding. So I followed a friend of mine over to Australia and then to New Zealand yeah. uh, and ended up really just winging it and uh, snowboarding every day, living in a, a like a Reiki commune. Uh, What's it Reiki? Reiki is a s sort of healing energy transfer okay. work. It's pretty, it's like uh, new age voodoo stuff, yeah. but it was new to me. Um, but hitchhiking to and from the mountain every day and really getting a, a good, solid, disconnected break from tech and from yeah. hacking stuff and security. Six months uh, of skiing or me, snowboarding in, in the South Island of New Zealand. It was, I think, three months, three or four months of snowboarding. And then when the snow melted, actually, I had a, a guitar and a backpack and hitchhiked <laughs> from the bottom of the South Island to the top of the North Island and back down again. Oh my God, that's awesome. Eight weeks. Uh, and I met some amazing people along the way. The New Zealand culture was very welcoming. People would give me a ride, they'd give me a meal, they'd put me to work. Uh, and I really got to see a side of the country that I think you can't get from the Lonely Planet. So it was a fantastic wow. experience. So the, the, ex the experience, obviously the, the hitchhiking to me sounds like one of the coolest experiences. Uh, do you have any particular stories about encounters along the way, uh, up or down, that were noteworthy and you want to share with us? Sure. I got. I got picked up by a guy who was driving an RV. They call them caravans over there. Okay. And uh, this guy got me hundreds of miles. He got me across uh, the body of water that separates the North Island from mm -hmm. the South Island and then took me to, to meet his family. And the, the difference between the experience I've had trying to hitchhike around the U.S. versus the experience I had in New Zealand was just night and day. Hmm. The, the, the openness, the welcoming sort of feeling uh, and the, the ability to connect and interact with people is just really extraordinary over there. So to be fair, we're talking about 17 years ago? It was a long time ago, so, so it might be different you, now. <laughs> we want to be careful with yeah. recommendations for today. Right. Um, so then, you know, kind of diving into, I, I do want to get into your, back on, your, your background and stuff. I, sure. I was looking through your LinkedIn profile and like the very first job you've got listed is... Uh, is as a crew and then as first mate yep. for, for the Watermark. Career development. Um, and so, of course, I, I can't not ask about this. Talk to me about what, what is Watermark? So back then it was actually called Chesapeake Marine Tours. Okay. Uh, and it was a company run by a gentleman named Ed Hartman, who was a, an old school maritime guy, uh, who bought a series of pretty good sized tour boats and ran a, a tourist maritime business in the Annapolis Harbor. So as a kid, 
the Inner Harbor or the, the city dock of Annapolis was a, a really, it was an epicenter. Is that where you're from, Annapolis area? No, but that's where I went to high school. Okay. And uh, Well, you can't be from too far away from that then, right? <laughs> I was actually born in Boston, okay. but then grew up in Northern California and Southern California. Oh, right. We moved to uh, to the East Coast, I think it was for seventh grade. Okay, and so so seventh grade to high school, you were in Annapolis. Yep, in Annapolis. And I remember I had done some work running cables, starting with coax and then eventually uh, Twisted Pair, Cat5. Yeah. But I really wanted to get a job where I was out in the sun, on the sea. Uh, and so I walked into the, the office of Chesapeake Marine Tours and said, hey, I want a job. And they said, well, how old are you? And I looked around and saw that there was a minimum age requirement on the wall. And I said, oh, I'm 15. And I think I was 14 at the time. But they, they hired me. They put me to work. They taught me a lot about uh, boats, uh, marine navigation, the rules of the road on the sea, how to use the radio. Uh, and it was a really great experience. I, yeah. I had a great time being out there. Um, the only downside was they were all motorboats. So uh, no sailboats in the fleet. But it was really really great way to connect with the water and that maritime culture out yeah. there and earn earn a few bucks along the way. I think the yeah. the starting wage out there at the time was like four bucks an hour. So yeah. it was an interesting place to start. And it looks like you eventually became the first mate, which I assume means you got to wear a cool hat. More stripes, more more stripes <laughs> on my shoulders and the, the epaulets. Uh, and it meant that the captain would have me do more, uh, more responsibility. So I would actually dock the boat, which is a non-trivial undertaking for like a hundred foot long, you know, 40 foot high boat yeah. that holds 300 people. For a 15 year old kid yeah, too, right? Yeah, it was a big deal. I, I felt pretty good about being trusted with those kinds yeah, of responsibilities. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, let's get a little bit into, you know, how you got into the security world. When, when did you first get involved with technology at all? So started, my, my old man uh, brought home an IBM PC way back in the day. So yeah. it was the original 8088, like 4.77 megahertz. Yeah. Can it like less than 640K of RAM. Yeah. Uh, and I took to it immediately, started teaching myself basic, got the original. Did you buy the magazines and, and, and transcribe oh, yeah. programs out of the magazine? For sure. And yeah. I quickly learned how to upgrade the thing with like dips, yeah. trying to get enough memory to run uh, Flight Simulator, because I always wanted to be a pilot. And so I started with Microsoft Flight Simulator way back in the day, learning about aviation, learning mm -hmm. about radio navigation. And uh, it was actually a really good, because the flight simulator required so much out of the hardware, it taught me more about the hardware too, how yeah. to rip it apart and try to get more, more performance out of it. Um, so pretty much just hacked away on the machine, but the, the real game changer was figuring out how to connect to the, the rest of the world, which at the time was dial-up. Hmm. So my dad, again, got me a modem, and it took me like probably six months to try to figure out how to get it going. Because remember back then, you couldn't just Google something. Yeah. Uh, there was no user's manual. I didn't really know how to how a serial port worked or what you know, 8N1 meant or how to get it going. But once that happened and I started connecting to other bulletin boards, that's when my, my sort of the, the learning curve for me getting into tech really started to become yeah. an exponential progression because there were all these other people out there like me doing the same kind of stuff. So before you know it, I was running a board and then I wanted to modify the board. So I had to get the source code for the board I was running and figure out how to really start extending it. Yeah. Uh, and that really started teaching me software development in a way that was, was engaging. Because prior Practical, to that, useful, right? yeah, yeah, I could do stuff and see the results immediately. And then the users of the board, who were really like customers back then, would get to benefit from that as well. Yeah. So it was a cool way to get, get fingers dirty. Is this high school it. time frame or junior high or what? Yep. Yeah. Of each? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then, you know, it looks like you, you graduated from high school in Annapolis, is that right? That's right. And then what did you do after that? Uh, let's see. After that, I ended up going to the University of Colorado. Is that what brought you out here the first time? Yep. I had, we had some uh, 
family friends that had property out here in Frisco. So we did a family vacation out there and I just fell in love with the mountains. Yeah. Uh, really liked the clean air, uh, the access to the backcountry. It just felt like uh, a, a big difference from the sort of heat and humidity of the, of the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so did four years of Boulder, did a bunch of tech stuff there. Uh, started actually a consulting business uh, under the name Electric Alchemy, which would later become a, a security company. But back then it was really just break fix IT stuff because mm -hmm. there were there weren't a genius bar. There was mm -hmm. people had very few options for where to go. So I put an ad in the in the local newspaper, had a beeper that people would hit me on and I'd call them back and go fix their stuff. And this was probably the Windows 3.1 era, yeah. uh, pre-internet. Um, but it, it allowed me to generate a lot more revenue than yeah. I would have been getting working waiting tables or, or whatever yeah. else. And, and you also got to get your skills improved, right? Yep, and see, I learned a lot customers. doing that. Yep. Yeah, you, every time you go into one of those calls, like it's, it's a new thing, right? They're never exactly the same as the previous one. Yeah, I remember I actually took a job with a computer company in Boulder to, to augment the consulting income I was generating. The company was called Connecting Point, which I think is long since deceased, but they dropped me into Wells Fargo Bank as like a, I don't know, 19 year old. And suddenly I had to really up my game around Novell Netware and a bunch of other stuff that I had cursor, cursory familiarity with. Right. But suddenly a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, but that really, I think, set the stage for a, a, a future in consulting where every time you drop into a gig, you got to get oriented yeah. and start delivering value really quickly because yeah. your bill rate's you know, pretty significant. Uh, and they, the expectation is that you're going to yeah. be able to solve their problems. Don't freak out. Smile and go figure it out. Smile and figure it out. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Don't be afraid of new things and, and, you know, find a path forward. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, you know, I, walk me through, and I, I see a lot of different roles you did, you know, at mm -hmm. Gateway, at TC, <laughs> a TSMC, uh, I don't know what AS Watson is in Hong Kong. I don't yep. know which of these are worth talking about. It looks like some international experience. Love yeah, to. so after Boulder, I, I took a job with Anderson Consulting uh, in Palo Alto, so yeah. right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, the very first project they put me on was Gateway Computer. So it was an e-commerce system built on a Microsoft stack. Uh, and the, the project was all geared towards taking the friction out of their sales process and building a self-service configurator. And the back ends back then were all AS400. So there's some really arcane stuff. This was not a service-oriented architecture. Right. There was no concept of uh, microservices or APIs or anything. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. Uh, but I started there on the technical architecture team uh, and then started doing more and more security stuff just because I had an aptitude for it and they recognized that. Yeah. Uh, but that was fun. It was in San Diego and it was a sort of surreal experience going from being a, a college student to then like flying to work on an airplane, living in a, a like the Ritz-Carlton uh, in La Jolla um, and then going to work every day with a bunch of other super smart folks. Yeah. And, uh, it was it was really really a, a different experience. I didn't know there were jobs like that until I started doing it, and it was a pretty cool way to start a career. Yeah. Um, after that, they needed somebody to go to uh, TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor, okay. big chip fab in Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, is that your first international experience? Though? Yep. Yeah. And this company is uh, it was based in Sinchu, Taiwan, which is sort of like the San Jose, California of okay. Taiwan. Uh, so I landed there and quickly had to acclimate to a really fast-paced environment and also some cultural differences. So mm. they put all the consultants in a room with no windows and expected us to work really long hours, uh, but I enjoyed it. It was an mm. interesting challenge. Um, and that project was all about building uh, essentially a, a highly available US data center to basically take the load uh, off of their Asian uh, systems and provide better performance. So the, the 
culmination of that project was flying back to the U.S. with uh, an entourage of about five Chinese engineers uh, to build out the data center wow. in San Jose. So getting, I expected that they'd want to go like sightseeing in San Francisco and mm -hmm. do like real traditional touristy stuff, when in fact what they really wanted to do was go take a picture of themselves in front of the, the Cisco uh, <laughs> logo at the headquarters there. That's, sort that's of awesome. A, yeah, pilgrimage for them. So a cool project uh, was basically working on both the network architecture and the security team yeah. then. And it was, it was really straightforward e-commerce stuff. So now you're in Taiwan. Yep. You're, what, 20 years old? Is that mm -hmm. something like that? It was your first time in Taiwan. What, like, what did you do in terms of like, did you do fun stuff? Did you get oh, to... Oh yeah, so the, the perk at the firm was that uh, basically they let you do these things called triangle trips where you had a, a travel stipend for each week or each month depending upon what your fly home cadence was. And you could go anywhere in the world as long as it cost the same as or less than what it would take to get you home. Yeah. So I, I took great advantage of that and saw most of Southeast Asia by just not going home yeah. and instead going with, usually with somebody from the project yeah. to go explore. And we saw an awful lot of Southeast Asia wow. using that, that vector. Any favorites? Uh, really had a soft spot for Thailand. Okay. So uh, Koh Samui is beautiful. Or? Bangkok was hectic and was sort of a spectacle, city, right? lots of traffic, lots of uh, crazy stuff to see. Yeah. But I really, I'm a beach guy. I yeah. like warm water. I like getting in the waves and uh, really found a soft spot for, for Phuket. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was easy to get there from Hong Kong. Yeah, that's great. I have heard lots of positive things about Phuket. So. Yeah, haven't yeah. been back since the tsunami, so I hope everything's still in good shape over there, that they've Recovering. been able to rebuild, but yeah. uh, really enjoyed getting over there. So you got to go over to Hong Kong after that? Yeah, so when the project with TSMC finished up, I went to Hong Kong, did a brief stint doing a, uh, this was, their dot-com cycle was a little bit behind the U.S., yeah. but it was still rising. So I did a, a sports I think the project was called Sportsnet HK, which was sort of like ESPN for China yeah. over there, right in the middle of, of Hong Kong. Uh, but then the longer project I landed on there was for A.S. Watson, which is part of uh, Hutchison Wampoa Limited, which is a massive conglomerate. Uh, A.S. Watson is the, Watson's is the grocery chain, the retail okay. chain, but it's a, a huge uh, retail presence. And the project was essentially to rebuild the entire technical infrastructure for that chain of like a thousand plus grocery stores in, yeah. uh, in Hong Kong and China. Yeah. Uh, so big Oracle shop, uh, a lot of big iron back in those days. There was no cloud. It was all on-prem. We um, got to do a lot of interesting uh, security work, basically mostly a Microsoft stack, a little bit of Linux starting to kind of creep its way into the, to the enterprise there. Uh, but a long-term project working with people from Hong Kong, from the UK, people coming over from India. Uh, and yeah. really interesting, good, good outcomes, proud yeah. of what we built. Uh, and after two years there, I was ready to come home and yeah. starting to feel a little bit isolated and wanted to, to do something different. So I'm just looking at, uh, you know, so you, you came back and I know you worked for, for Accenture some more and did yep. WAMU stints. I'm going to move us forward just because otherwise we're going to sure. run out of time. Uh, right in the middle of this, Squaw Valley ski instructor. Yep. yep. So what, <laughs> happened there, what happened there? Yeah, what happened there was that uh, the Washington Mutual project was awesome, but they were burning me out with travel. So I was living in North Lake Tahoe in Incline Village but flying uh, to L.A. and Seattle and Chicago each week. Mm -hmm. I'd have to be at each site for like a day and a half. Jesus, every and, week? Yeah, and after six months of that, I was really burned out. Uh, so when we, we wrapped up that project, I wanted to take some time off, uh, went to New Zealand, as we talked about at the kickoff mm -hmm. here. And when I came back from New Zealand, the tech market was still pretty slow. So a couple buddies uh, of mine from the BBS days decided to come out to Tahoe 
uh, and we all got jobs at Squaw Valley for that season as ski instructors, snowboard yeah. instructors. So uh, again, kind of riding that, that ski bum, hitchhiking mentality from New Zealand, but this time in Tahoe, I had yeah. what people call an endless winter, back-to-back uh, yeah. -back yeah. snow seasons. So that was, that was a ton of fun, uh, but by the end of that, um, I was starting to think about, huh, I think I might be ready to get back into yeah. technology. Uh, and it's like from here, is it AB and Amaro is next to you? No, there was, there was something that's not on there, which is notable, which was that a, a good friend of mine, Ashkan Sultani, he called me when I was up in Tahoe and he said, I've got a, a customer who's being attacked. Uh, it's a DDoS for ransom. Okay. I said, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd done a lot of networking and scale networking previously in my career. And yeah. this whole notion of a denial of service attack coupled with a ransom demand was interesting. So I ended up working with him from Tahoe for several months, we ended up coming down to LA and building out a really interesting reverse proxy uh, with an IPsec backhaul to the origin servers system that was able to withstand uh, significant denial of service attacks. This is time. 2003, so yeah. you know, 15 years ago. We built something that impressive. was essentially analogous to Cloudflare's model, okay. but before there was a cloud, right. uh, and we did it in a, a data center in LA, one Wilshire, which was just really close to the backbone. So we had a gig drop then, which yeah. was just a mind-blowing thing. Like the yeah. day we got the gig drop, it was a, a celebratory affair. Um, but that's what really pulled me back into uh, security. We had some some cool sort of celebrity folks show up. Dan Kaminsky came up to our Tahoe ski house, and I was really proud of what I built. Dan looked at it, and I swear in like 10 minutes, he had written some code that just broke my whole thing. He, uh, he ruined it for me uh, <laughs> and sent me back to work. Hey. That's um, how you learn, right? Yeah, but it was a it was a really fun project. We called that thing DDoS resistance. Yeah, uh, we had a really cool technology uh, that we developed as part of this, but we didn't. None of us on the project knew how to run a business. Uh, so another company that had a similar model was called DigiDefense, okay. which became Prolexic. Uh, Barrett Lyon was the founder there, and he did a great job. He he sold that company, I think, to Akamai, and then built another one. What's his new one? Is he Direct Defense or Defense.net? I mean, Defense.net. He sold to F5. The guy yeah. is just killing yeah. it on yeah. that in that market. So hats off to Barrett for for <laughs> crushing it in that space. Uh, and it was fun. He and I were peers from IRC years ago, and we yeah. were comparing notes as all this was going down. Uh, but mitigating ransom-based attacks at the time was pretty. It had a sort of Hollywood subplot to it that yeah. made the the tech suddenly a lot more interesting than just the packets that we yeah. were stopping. That's that's really cool that you did that. So what did you, what did you guys end up doing with the tech? Did you did it go on a shelf somewhere or did you yep. did it go? No, we were not able to monetize it. We I didn't know how to raise venture money back then. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of interest from investors, but they were all sports book operators, hmm. uh, and the incentive alignment was I think <clears throat> imperfect. Uh, Barrett went and raised real venture money. He had real I yeah. think business partners, so he just he, he had superior execution yeah. without question. All right. Uh, kind of moving forward a little bit. Sure. Uh, I, I, I kind of talk. You have too many cool things on here. <laughs> you did the Antarctic program. I assume yep. that was with uh, Raytheon back yep. in the day. Raytheon had a group called Raytheon Polar. Yeah. Uh, I had been doing a bunch of freelance stuff in uh, the U.S. after getting back from a stint at ABN Amro in London, and uh, I kept seeing these job postings for security stuff at the Antarctic I, program. I remember seeing all those postings. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "There's security in Antarctica. Awesome!" So I ended up. Uh, Talking to the folks down there, ended up coming on as a contractor, as a security engineer. Did you and work with uh, with Ed Fuller? On yep. That? Yeah. Yep. He came in. I'd, I'd been there for a bit when he came in. Came in after you. Okay. Uh, but there are a bunch of other folks that were just super cool personalities. Yeah. The culture there was amazing. There were folks that were like lifers and had deployed to Antarctica multiple, yeah. like for decades, uh, and I'd hear all this kinds of cool lore. But it was also anchored in this science. So this, like, being able to do security in 
in a way that was actually helping scientists do climate research to look at things like global warming, to look mm -hmm. at things like the impact of humans on the planet, right. uh, it was a, a very strong, I think, ideological uh, benefit of being part of that program. Yeah. And I was actually able to work with uh, a few folks that I met through the program for years. So Garrett Padgham came on to be my partner at Electric Alchemy. Uh, Sue Pomeroy came on to be uh, running uh, GRC, Regulatory Compliance at SendGrid. Hmm. So some real awesome relationships that have lasted way beyond uh, yeah. that, that time with the Antarctic. Yeah, you're only there for a little bit over a year, it looks like. I, I assume that's pretty a kind of <clears> a, a high burnout rate type of a job. Yeah, you know, I don't remember the, the specifics of it. It felt like longer than that. I remember I was supposed to deploy. I was really excited about going down to Antarctica. Uh, but my daughter was born, uh, she was due to be born right when I was about to deploy, so I had wow. to pass the buck, and I think Garrett went in my stead. Oh, but great, great memories from that. I keep in touch with Ed Fuller, just saw him at the holiday party that yeah. you and Alex put together. Uh, really, really solid, good feeling about the way that whole thing yeah, went down. That's neat. Yeah. Um, you know, you did, you've done some volunteer work in the community, and I want to talk about that, but let's, let's get through the jobs here first. Sure. Um, mobile scope? I actually don't, I don't know anything about this one. Yeah, mobile scope was, uh, it came out of research that I did with Ashkan Sultani. He, this Ashkan guy keeps coming up. Yeah. He and I have been friends for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, we got to know each other through the electronic music scene in Berkeley in San Francisco, but ended up collaborating on a bunch of technical stuff. Yeah. So he pulled me in to work with uh, Julia Angwin, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journal. At the, she was at the journal at the time. Okay. And we did a study where we instrumented the, the, the network footprint of 100 iOS apps and 100 Android apps, looking at what information are they leaking about the user of the app. So we created identities uh, with a bunch of PII and then monitored the network with an right. SSL decrypting proxy uh, to see you know what these what these things were, were sharing and the the series in the journal was called uh, what they know the specific feature related to this was called your apps are watching you so we spent a pretty good chunk of time on that uh, and it was it was great because it started raising normal people attention to this notion of uh, privacy might be something that you care about and maybe maybe you don't want to be sharing this information without your mm -hmm. knowledge or informed consent uh, but the tech the, the tech uh, infrastructure we built for this, we ended up turning into a, a product called MobileScope. Um, ended up working with Bruce Schneier on a potential productization of it. Talked to a bunch of West Coast VCs. They were all super interested, but they wanted to turn it into a, a tool for control. Uh, hmm. Basically, a, a corporate mobile MDM. Right. You know, in that's the early where the money days is, of MDM. Right? That's where the money was. Yeah. So it was really cool getting to work with Bruce on this. Uh, but at the end of the day, we ended up deciding uh, to work with Aldo Cortezi, who's an open source developer in New Zealand, who creates a tool called Midim Proxy. Um, so we built that into the rig and then ended up, we won the journal's hackathon in New York, uh, associated with, or right around the time of this, but then ended up selling the, the tool and the associated tech infrastructure to a company called Evidon, okay. uh, that I think they're called Ghostry now. So it's basically a privacy-focused company that, they, they were more aligned with the vision of allowing this tool to be used to help people understand how their information is being shared and misused yeah. rather than turning it into a tool for corporate control. Right. I think Ghostry, they, they're also, uh, they have a tool around like JavaScript blocking mm -hmm. and stuff. I, yep. The, the main idea is like the tracking on the web is ubiquitous and yeah. Ghostry uh, created one of the first browser plugins to allow you yeah. to gain some control over that. That's awesome. So it was a, it was a cool project, a quick win. Uh, and it felt like we were doing some good for the world in the process. Yeah, it looks like only a, a year and a few months that you, yep. that you did that. And about the same time, you started another one, uh, Jump Cloud? Yep. So Jump Cloud, uh, I co-founded with uh, a few guys, uh, Raj Bhargava, who was the CEO at Still Secure, so okay. Colorado 
security company. Yeah, it was an uh, MSSP, right? Service provider. Well, they had they had done a bunch of uh, productization around uh, commercial implementations of Snort mm -hmm. and IDS for for .gov okay. uh, and .mil. Um, so got to know Raj. He had found me through the work I did for uh, the journal and MobileScope and was super interested in, in working together going forward. Uh, founded JumpCloud with Raj, Casey Berg, who went on to become CTO, I think, at RetournPath, and Colin Mazzara, uh, who's just an amazing engineer who uh, later came to work with us at SandGrid. So okay. pretty, pretty awesome yeah. uh, founding team. Um, JumpCloud's initial uh, pitch was essentially uh, agent-based security for your cloud instances. Hmm. This was way before uh, people were doing agents. Uh, but we really wanted to try to unify log visibility with network activity. Uh, and at the time, it was a pretty novel concept. But we were able to demonstrate that by looking at anomalies in the logs and combining it with, like, why is this process then initiating a network connection? Mm -hmm. like, why, is, uh, why is Apache initiating an outbound connection? Um, frequently, would give you a much stronger sense that there's a real compromise going on than looking at logs or network traffic in right. isolation. Uh, company ended up acquiring another company um, that was more identity focused uh, and the product vision shifted more towards a directory as a service, hmm. which is where it is today. But the company's been quite successful. What's I the left. company called? It's still called JumpCloud. Okay. Uh, the, the two companies that merged early on were JumpCloud and Safe Instance. Okay. Um, but really excited to see uh, that team execute on the vision. Yeah. Uh, the directory of a as a service model has become very important as companies have moved away from Active Directory as yeah. the source of truth. Uh, and it allows cloud-native companies to be able to have heterogeneous environments of endpoints yeah. uh, and basically be able to apply consistent security policies across those. So it's, uh, I think, a win for Colorado. They've raised a bunch of venture money. They're hiring. And they're here in town, too? They're in Boulder. Okay. And I think there's like 150 okay, people working there. Wow. So it's, uh, I should know more about them. That's yep. interesting. Yeah. Very cool. And are you still associated at all with them? Or? No, you know, I left after about a year. Yeah. Raj and I had a, a difference of opinion around vision. I wanted to focus more on the security aspect. Right. He wanted to focus more on the directory as a service aspect. Yeah. Uh, so I decided to, to move on at that time. Yeah. But uh, still long in the company. The early investors in JumpCloud uh, were Foundry Group uh, and David Cohen, who's the one of the co-founders of Techstars, yeah. uh, which is an organization that I've continued to work with through the years. Yeah. Uh, and SendGrid, which was a, a later part of the story, was also uh, a Techstars company. So the, yeah. the DNA there was uh, pretty thick from the beginning. Well, I think we're close enough to, I know you did your electric alchemy for a while mm -hmm. on the side, but um, if you don't mind, just let's talk about how you got plugged in with SendGrid and, sure. and what, what you did there. Yeah, so like I mentioned, uh, SendGrid had investors in common with JumpCloud. So Brad Feld had been on my board um, at JumpCloud. Uh, Ryan McIntyre was on the board at SendGrid. I had gotten to know Jim Franklin, who was the CEO at the time at SendGrid, very well because I'd been trying to recruit him to uh, join my board at JumpCloud. Huh. And what I didn't realize is that Jim's really crafty and sophisticated, and uh, he was practicing CEO ninjutsu on me because every time we'd sit down for me to like draw him in to come mm -hmm. join my board, he was secretly recruiting me to join SendGrid. Mm. Um, so when I made the decision to leave uh, JumpCloud, I reached out to Jim and said, hey, I know you've been looking for this, this mythical CISO for SendGrid. Yeah. Uh, for like a year plus and haven't found the right fit. Um, and, you know, maybe we should see if, if, if I could be a fit there. Yeah. Uh, so he and I sat down, I talked with the rest of the leadership team, and uh, they thought that I would be able to sort of thread the needle. All the previous candidates for the gig had come in and had, I think, too much of a black and white approach mm -hmm. to, well, security has to be like this. And SendGrid's culture was notoriously kind of fast and loose, really high growth, great product market fit. Uh, but to be blunt, quite a lot of tech debt, quite a lot of 
you know, security risk. Yeah. Uh, and they couldn't have a sort of traditional CISO come in and try to clean up everything overnight. They wanted somebody more pragmatic. Uh, so we decided to, I decided to join, they decided they wanted me. Uh, so at the time that I joined, the company was pretty small. Um, I think it w this was 2014, there must have been about 100 people, uh, I think just north of like 25 million in revenue. Yeah. And uh, it was super exciting. Um, headquarters was up in Boulder, great culture, like amazing culture, super smart people, uh, and everyone was just pumped to be showing up to work every day. Um, now, as the CISO, I was freaked out because there was just a lot of risk yeah. in the beginning. And at you know, day one, I didn't have a team. Uh, so one of the very first things I did was to advocate for the creation of a team uh, to make regulatory compliance and third-party risk and the GRC piece of it, a first-class citizen yeah. of the program, to get some engineers uh, and to really start integrating with the engineering and the operations group to make security something that wasn't just security's job, but yeah. to make it part of you know, just shipping code at Sendrid. Right. So it was, a, it was an evolution. Uh, in, a, in a really, really fulfilling experience. Lots yeah. of challenges along the way, but I mean, you see what the outcome was, everyone well, for those who, around. For those who don't know, maybe you could talk, talk about the outcome, because sure. probably not everyone listening does. Yeah, Sengrid's one of those companies that like everybody uses and nobody's heard of. Yeah. It's plumbing, uh, it's email infrastructure as a service, and uh, when some, I say you use some it. Some examples of who uses it, yeah. Yeah, GitHub, Pandora, Spotify, Airbnb. Yeah. So anytime you're using any one of those services and you get an email from them, uh, maybe it's a notification, maybe it's right. a password reset, uh, some sort of reminder, it flows through SendGrid's network. And the yeah. reason for that is that sending email at scale is difficult. If you just try to do it straight out of your production AWS instances, it's not going to get there. It's going to be marked as spam, and it's not going to hit the inbox. Yeah. Uh, the, the magic that SendGrid figured out was that by uh, spreading out the load across IPs of good reputation uh, and being cognizant of what the mailbox providers uh, like MSN, Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, fill in the blank, how they think about incoming mail and, and being sensitive to, to what their policies are, you can get much better deliverability. Yeah. So SendGrid had a, a tremendous uh, growth story, rapidly growing customers and revenue, uh, and then over the course of the four years had a successful IPO on the NYSE uh, fall of 2017, yeah. uh, traded up in the public market for better part of a year before being acquired by Twilio. Uh, I think it was announced in you know, fourth quarter of last year, 2018. Um, and that deal, I think, is scheduled to be consummated here this quarter. And Twilio is kind of the same thing, except they do texts instead of email. Yep, Twilio does voice and uh, SMS and text. So I think that was a really good, it's a really good M&A. Uh, there's common investor DNA. Yeah. So Twilio, Bessemer Venture Partners was in on both Twilio and SendGrid. Uh, and my team spent quite a bit of time collaborating with uh, the Twilio team because we were solving the same kinds of problems. Right. Sengrid had a lot of problems with abuse of the platform. Spammers love right. how great our deliverability was. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of threat actors would figure out that by hacking Sengrid, they could actually gain access to really choice yeah. targets without having to go through their normal defenses. Uh, so we, we had a really good reputation with Twilio long before the acquisition ever yeah. ever happened. And I think it makes sense. I think that that eventual integration will be good for, for both companies and for yeah. the world. So um, is it okay to ask you about the data breach that happened there a few, sure. couple of years ago? It was public information, yep. right? I, I can't share anything that, that uh, wasn't publicly disclosed. Well, you know, I'm not so much interested in that as I am like your experience through the data breach. You know sure. what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, I, the technical details of any data breach, you know, they, they, you can make up whatever facts you want to in this case. I, I'd love to know your experience, you know, going through what's a pretty major data breach from yep. a, 
optics perspective, you know, managing that internal to the company, managing it personally with your personal life. If you mm -hmm. don't mind just talking about that experience, I sure. think that'd be really valuable. Yeah, so the, the sort of cosmic irony about that whole situation was that Foundry, uh, which was one of our investors at SendGrid, had organized a security summit uh, that I volunteered to help organize and to give a keynote for. And we scheduled the date for this like six months in advance. Yeah. Uh, and then lo and behold, we had this data breach uh, and the public disclosure date for it ended up being the day of the Foundry Security oh Summit. So it was one of those things where I said, well, geez, should I man the, man the con and, yeah. or should I just go give this keynote? So I ended up giving the keynote for this Foundry Internal Security yeah. Summit meeting, probably like 50, 60 people there, but then went back to the war room and kept, kept running the breach. Um, but I think that the, the thing that made this, that, that whole breach uh, sort of, tolerable was that we had a good team, we had a uh, good process in place, we had a plan, um, we had good relationships with other departments like support, customer success, legal, such that when we had our turn to really be put in, in the line of fire, yeah. uh, we performed well. We worked together as a team to get past the adversity. Uh, we also were very intentional about communicating in as transparent a way as possible with customers. Uh, and I think they really appreciated that. If you rewind uh, the tape a bit, you remember the RSA breach where mm -hmm. the Chinese went after uh, the Secure ID token seeds to get the stealth fighter plans or whatever it was. Uh, but RSA had a series of statements that came out after that where they kept backpedaling and said, well, we had a situation, but don't worry, nothing bad right. happened. Um, and a as it all played out, you finally realize like, oh, wow, everyone's totally owned and this is really bad. Yeah. But it took a lot of time to get to that. And at the end of that, we were really, everybody that was we were customers at the time were really frustrated. Uh, contrast that with the Sengrid approach, which was that as we uncovered the depth and the, the sort of magnitude of the situation, we communicated uh, very transparently with our customers. We told them what steps needed to be taken. Yeah. We initiated password resets, uh, and we talked publicly about what changes we were making to both our controls uh, and to our processes to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Yeah. And I think that got us a lot of credibility. There was, there's always this fear when you're talking about security in the boardroom of, oh, if we have this breach, we're going to lose X much revenue or mm -hmm. this many customers. We're going to see churn increase by this percent. Uh, we didn't see that. And I think it's in large part due to the fact that we handled it competently. We communicated about it as openly as possible. Uh, and we took you know, real steps and increased our level of investment uh, to make sure that something like that didn't happen again, at least not in that same way. And it only happened once, right? They, I mean, the fact that it only happened once is, it makes it a lot easier to... Yep. to work through. I think if you mm -hmm. had another yeah. one eight months later, sure. it kind of changes the like, perception. The, I think the public perception of a company like Yahoo now is, well, okay, you, you had this situation and then maybe there was some executive miscommunication or right. cover-up and then something else terrible happened. That, that type of, uh, that burns systemic, bridges. Systemic it, stuff yeah. going on. Now you, uh, you know, you worked at a tech company, a very visible breach, made the news. Mm -hmm. um, you you survived. You, you know you weren't let go as a part of that. What do you what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean that that is like the the saying out there, right? Generally, a CISO's sacrificial lamb, and you know that they might lose their job. I'm not sure if I believe it's true, but I, I think it's worth addressing. A little sure. Bit, right? So, uh, I worked in that capacity in that role as a part of a leadership team. Yeah. Uh, that I had kept informed about uh, our level of risk and our level of exposure. So this breach was not a surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I communicated that we had a high level of exposure, high level of risk, that we were working to remediate across the business as a priority, 
but alongside other priorities. Like yeah. we were shipping a new website, we were building a new uh, API end to end, we were opening a new data center, uh, we were focusing on revenue and growth, and we were investing in security at a level that we as a leadership team felt was appropriate. Uh, but I think as a CISO, I was never targeted or blamed for this event mm -hmm. because I had allowed our leadership team as a group to make informed decisions about how to manage risk. Now, in hindsight, would we have prioritized security a little bit higher? Perhaps. Uh, but it, this didn't happen because we didn't have the right information. And I think I got a lot of credit from uh, the other members of the leadership team and also from the board of directors for having identified specific areas of, of risk yeah. uh, and put together a plan to remediate it. Yeah. And did that accelerate your ability to, to, to deliver on those plans? That Without you, question. Yeah. So uh, super stressful. I didn't sleep. I was, you know, my whole team was working super hard. It was, it was a tense period of many months. Uh, but we ended up in the wake of the breach getting to sort of uh, very quickly deploy a whole bunch of new process and new controls yeah. uh, that had been planned to be slow rolled over multiple quarters. Yeah. So this, we already knew what we wanted to do. This gave us an opportunity to do it on a much uh, greatly accelerated timetable, That's which great. it felt good. Great. We have about 10 minutes left and I want to sure. get into, you know, you made a decision to leave um, mm -hmm. about a year ago, right? Mm -hmm. My goodness, it's been a year I've been trying to talk to you. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, so about a year ago, you, you, you chose to leave. Um, if, I don't know if you want to talk at all about that or, sure. or, or you know, what, what you're doing now and, and give you some time to tell yeah. me. You do so, lots of cool stuff, I know. Lots of fun stuff. So uh, one of the things that I had been super intentional about at SendGrid and that my leadership, uh, my, my managers, my, my bosses, so uh, Yancey, uh, Yancey Spruill and Samir Delakia. Yancey's the CFO, COO, who I reported to directly since he joined. Uh, and Samir, who came in as CEO to replace Jim Franklin, uh, they both always encouraged me to hire, not for what the company was today, but for what it would be like two to four years down the track. Okay. Uh, so I made two really key hires at Sengrid because I was responsible not just for security, but also for IT. Uh, so for security, I hired Scott Gerlach to be mm -hmm. initially director of security and then uh, VP and CISO. Um, and on the IT side, I hired Mickey Hurt, uh, director, I think now senior director of IT. And by really sort of over-clubbing on those hires, it set the table for me to be able to make a graceful exit shortly after the big milestone. Yeah. Uh, and to be able to know that I could walk away from that after having made a big difference, uh, but having built a team that would be able to continue to execute and to support the rest of the leadership team, uh, all the company's objectives. And that's really proven to be true. Those those two are still there, yeah. uh, still kicking ass and still doing an amazing job uh, through the, the IPO and the transition. So yeah. really, really happy with the way that all worked out. Um, in terms of what I did after that, uh, I'd been going hard for a really long time, wanted to take a break. Uh, so after leaving Sengrid, I decided to not take any full-time gigs for at least six months. Uh, I did some work digging into some more interesting technology. So SendGrid is email. Email hasn't really changed since the 70s. Uh, so the most interesting thing about the, the career trajectory at SendGrid wasn't the technology, it was the scale at which we did it. Uh, but after taking a step back from that, I really wanted to look into two particular areas, one of which was machine learning and AI, uh, and the other was distributed ledger or cryptocurrency. It's uh, awesome technology. you didn't say blockchain there. That's fantastic. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's block, so easily could <laughs> Right. Um, so on the AI and ML front, I, I took to, uh, I had some really interesting conversations with a guy by the name of Jeremy Atchin, who is the founder CEO of a company in Boston called Data Robot. Hmm. Uh, so Data Robot came out of Techstars several years ago, uh, but basically has built a, an engine that automates machine learning, 
uh, and in particular uh, makes it easy to then sort of weaponize or productionize the models that the, the automated machine learning engine creates uh, for quick deployment into cloud uh, environments. Now, mm -hmm. the reason this was such an interesting uh, business model for me is that I had seen at SendGrid us go through and spend multiple years with the data science team that was awesome. We had some amazing PhD data scientists, but the cycle times that it would take for them to identify a problem and then you know, get the data they needed to then create a model, it was months or quarters. Yeah. And what Jeremy's system at DataRobot could do was really expedite that and make it self-service such that your business could reap the benefits of AI and ML. Uh, but without needing to have PhD data scientists on staff. Yeah. So super interesting there. I'm, uh, I do have an advisory board position there yeah. uh, and do continue to advise DataRobot uh, really, really long on, on that play. Yeah. Uh, so that was one thing I got super into. Um, another, as I mentioned, with this distributed ledger, cryptocurrency, blockchain. Uh, I had known Zuko for a number of years. I think you had him come on this did, show yeah. not long ago. Uh, so I totally regret not having invested in the Zcash series seed because he did approach me about that. I was just too busy uh, and too broke at the time um, to make that happen. But he and I stayed in touch. Uh, I had been interested in blockchain flash Bitcoin for a long time. I started mining uh, back in 2011 because at Electric Alchemy, we had a bunch of GPU power that we used for password cracking yeah. as part of red team engagements. Uh, but when we were between engagements, we'd point that hash power at uh, mining Bitcoin and then mm -hmm. later Ethereum. I also had been lead mentor for a Techstars company in 2016 called Bridge21 hmm. uh, that was essentially a cross-border remittance company uh, that used Bitcoin as the payment rail. Hmm. So essentially think Western Union, but yeah. way lower fees uh, and way faster settlement times by virtue of using crypto as the payment rail. Yeah. Uh, so I had, I had really been watching with great interest uh, this distributed ledger or blockchain thing taking hold and normal people starting to talk about it and uh, seeing how much interest it was it was getting in, in the mainstream. Uh, but the thing that really appealed to me about what Zuko's team and the Zcash, the Zcash company they had built around it had achieved was that he had taken novel cryptography that was really academic vaporware and he turned it into production code hmm. that really changes the, the base level of confidentiality that, yeah. that blockchain can provide. Uh, they had originally gone to the Bitcoin devs and said, hey, we have this mechanism for creating intrinsic privacy on the blockchain. And the Bitcoin core folks were like, sorry, too risky. We don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, so Zuko and company built their own protocol. They built their own coin, yeah. uh, Zcash. And I think that this project uh, really stands to be able to move the needle on driving widespread adoption of, of digital currency. I mm. think being technical people, we probably both agree that the future of money is digital. Uh, but if you go into a coffee shop today and pay for your coffee with Bitcoin, you've just revealed your entire net worth and your entire transaction has history to everybody on the planet, which I think is totally unacceptable if uh, digital currency is ever going to be used for, right. for mainstream uh, means of exchange. Um, so the Zcash company has been able to take this novel cryptography. It's been deployed now in production for two years with no breaks, uh, and it's, it works. So it's... It's mind-bending stuff. I used to consider myself very technical. Uh, now, I've taken this COO role at the Zcash company, so I'm now sitting side by side with just wizards that get cryptography at a level that I probably never will, uh, which is a humbling experience. But it's it's really great to be working side by side with such really yeah. smart people. And and the mission and vision of the company are to provide economic freedom for everybody. So it's this notion of uh, allowing everybody to be banked. Uh, and to remove centralized control points where, where people in power can make arbitrary decisions about who 
can or cannot participate in the system. So it's an opportunity to make a big dent in the universe, uh, yeah. and I'm really happy to be to be there doing that now. That's awesome. It, you know, the the COO change seems like a pretty significant one from everything <laughs> you've done in the past. Now you were CEO and founder of a company for a relatively small amount of time. Yep. Um, you know, I assume that there's been some some changes and some some uh, learning for you as you become a COO. Can you talk a little bit about what that's been like and sure. you know, maybe what you've learned in the last, what's it only been, what, just a few months, five months you've been You know, I'd here. actually joined the company as an advisor in January uh-huh. uh, and decided to go full-time and operational in September. Okay. But I'd been leaning in and doing quite a bit of stuff. I helped to pull together a board of directors, hired a CFO and a, a director of security. Okay. Um, the, the COO role, I think, was a natural progression. I had mentioned at SendGrid having the opportunity to work uh, directly for Yancey Sproul. He had come from Digital Globe where he, he was CFO, yeah. and the guy just has a, a wealth of experience. Uh, I learned an awful lot from Yancey about the people and process part. He, he was not a tech guy, and he'd tell you that to your yeah. face, uh, but I learned an awful lot about how to run uh, less technical functions that I think are equally important. And as, an, as a technical guy, I think I'd frequently overlooked the importance of those functions. So taking on that COO role, I have the benefit of having worked under some great people that taught me a lot about things like HR and finance. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's been good to come into it with, with that experience. Yeah. Um, having that sort of the 10,000 hours or the, you know, the long history of security, uh, it was really important for me to hire somebody else to ultimately own right. that because uh, security can, I th- could easily distract me from doing yeah. those other functions. And you'd, li- you'd like it if it did, right? Yeah, 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 it's hard to. It's tough, and I will say that the, the threat model at SendGrid was pretty intense because SendGrid was critical path for password resets for com- you know, things like GitHub, and what, what important lives on GitHub, a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but every single security incident we had at SendGrid, without exception, was related to SendGrid providing services for cryptocurrency companies or for VPS providers, like cloud infrastructure yeah. providers that were providing services to crypto. So now being uh, you know, a C-level exec at a cryptocurrency company, we have perhaps the greatest threat yeah. model. Why do you rob a bank? Yeah. That's where the money is? Yeah. It's, that's <laughs> clear and present danger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, but, but I also find myself inside the Zcash company, everybody has security DNA, everybody. Yeah. Like this company thinks about security more than any other company I've ever seen. So I frequently find myself playing devil's advocate and maybe pushing for a point of view that's more product-centric or more customer-centric rather than more security-centric mm. just to try to level out that situation. Yeah, that's interesting. I know we are, we're definitely going to run out of time here. A couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, how, many, how big is Zcash now? It's about 30 people, 30 people. mostly so that's, engineers. That's great growth. I mean, mm-hmm. just two years old, so yep. really cool to see the, the, the growth and uh, success. I, I know that we just reported a story recently I can't remember, one of the exchanges that's focused here in Colorado just had to lay off. Like, Shapeshift. Shapeshift had to yep. lay off a bunch of folks. Are you guys seeing you know, the, the decrease of cryptocurrency valuations? Is that impacting your guys' business? So uh, yes and no. So the, I, I read the, the Shapeshift article. Eric Voorhees is the mm-hmm. founder CEO at Shapeshift. He's also a seed investor, an angel investor mm-hmm. at Zcash. Um, so it was with a significant amount of sadness. I had friends that worked at yeah. Shapeshift. It was, it was tough to see them make those calls. Uh, at the Zcash company, I think we've been a bit more cognizant of the fact that the company is actually funded by blockchain, uh, what are called Coinbase rewards. So literally every block that is mined, 10 coins go to the miners and two and a half go to the founder's reward. A subset of, of that goes to the company. So knowing that the, the finances of the company are directly tied to the price of the coin, we were intentional about not getting over our ski tips on things yeah. like hiring, 
not over investing in marketing uh, and not not essentially getting over rotated on any of that so uh, we have no plans to lay anybody off uh, we have deferred plans to expand internationally okay so yes it absolutely impacts us but I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, being cautious and as a consequence we're, we're now well positioned to weather the storm of, yeah. of what people are calling crypto winter awesome yeah uh, so I'm going to change topics on you. Sure. You know, we had a lot of folks listening who are uh, looking to get into security. You know, secure mm -hmm. set students, people who who'd like to know um, what is it you, you know you'd be hiring. You know, put your CISO hat on. Sure. Uh, or you know your career long security guy hat on. What should these people be doing to get prepared to go get a job in security? You know, in sure. 2019. I actually just had a conversation. A friend of mine, Ann Mitchell, who she wrote the Can Spam Act. Mm -hmm. She's a, a lawyer who's been at that intersection of tech and regulation for a long time. Uh, but I was speaking with her son, who's in this exact situation of, yeah. hey, I want to get a job in security. So I started talking to him about what he's into, and it was really interesting because I think he's doing a lot of the right stuff, uh, which is that he's experimenting with multiple operating systems. He's learning software engineering uh, yeah. and things like networking, uh, which I think are actually more important than, for example, going and getting an associate's in cybersecurity or yeah. a master's in cyber, that sort of thing. I, I, I'm probably not alone in saying that uh, I have a strong bias towards hiring security people that have either a software development background or have a, an interest in learning software development. Yeah. I think the days of the security team being folks who like manage firewalls but don't code, I think those are over. Uh, at the at SendGrid, we had the security team had a very strong bias towards software engineering and ended up as part of this cloud migration that the company took on, building a whole bunch of custom code. Uh, that they've recently open sourced. They yeah. I think, called it Krampus. It's awesome. on SendGrid. Yeah. Helps you basically keep your cloud infrastructure in check. Uh, but to get back to your original question, I think a strong focus on fundamentals yeah. uh, and a strong focus on software engineering uh, is essential for anybody that wants to, to pursue a career in, in information security. Awesome. Well, Dave, we are just about out of time. I want to give you a chance. Anything I didn't ask you that you want to, you want to share with the community or you wish I'd asked? You know, I just want to give a shout out to you and Alex. I know you guys do a tremendous amount of work. Uh, to You built this community. Uh, you run the Slack forums, uh, did the holiday party, and you've done this podcast. Uh, I do know from the time I spent contributing to the OWASP community, that's a huge, uh, it's a huge time suck, yeah. to, be, to be really blunt. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, time away from the family, uh, time away from the wife and kids. Uh, but we really value and appreciate what you guys do. So sincere gratitude and appreciation oh, I think for, so. I appreciate for all that. that. I wasn't trying to set you up for that. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. You bet. Uh, well, Dave, I, I think that's it. Um, I, I really do think that there was a lot of stuff we didn't get into that I'd like to talk about more. So maybe I can get you in six months or something and sure. get an update. Yeah, there are a bunch of security companies that I really like. Um, yeah. This Anybody that knows me well knows that I'm super jaded yeah. and distrust most vendors. Uh, but there are probably a half dozen companies, uh, small, mid-sized companies that I think are really interesting and love to come back and talk awesome. to you a little bit Let's more about what they're doing. Cool. Great. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.